We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. I say post-match podcast. There's a bit more post than we would normally like. But, you know, there's been holidays and um, work issues and stuff. So it's, it's, it's been difficult to get everyone together at the same time. But we, ha- we are here eventually. And today's show is an extra special one because we've got an extra special guest. We've got Arsblog on the show. Um, and it's a re- really good conversation with James and Paul talking about... The great week that we've had, well, the great few weeks that we've had, we don't have Elliot this week as he's, he's away on holiday, um, enjoying the sunshine, all right, for some. The guys today are talking about the Brighton result, uh, transfers, and plenty more, so stay tuned for that. So as I said, yeah, the last few weeks have been really good, possibly, probably the best few weeks of the season so far. I mean, we've won our last four games in a row. We've signed two players, well, one first-team player and one one young player. And, um, yeah, we've got players back from injury. And the players who are back from injury are scoring goals and playing well. So our squad looks healthy. Uh, we're more confident in the way we're playing the game as well now. We've got options. And everything's a, a bit a bit better than, than it was um, post-Southampton. And that was a bit of a low point. But it was bounced right back. And we look good. Before we get started, can we all laugh at Chelsea and Jose Mourinho? I'm a, I think I'm a special one. <laughs> oh, that was great. Fantastic. But um, yeah, it, it wasn't just them though, was it? It was um, Man City lost. 
Tottenham <laughs> lost, Southampton all lost on the same day. Um, doesn't get much better than that. But um, yeah, yeah, I would expect Man United to go through. And um, there's a chance for Liverpool to go through as well. But their game's slightly more difficult away from home now. But yeah, we've got a good chance in the FA Cup this, this year now, as we did last year. But um, a lot of the big teams are out and we are pretty strong. So, you know, I don't want to get too excited about it too early because it's, it's too early. And obviously, as, as we've seen, anything can happen in the Cup. It just takes a bad performance from Arsenal, an off day and a good one from the opposition. So can't count your chickens just yet. But so far, so good. Very pleasing. And it's also very pleasing that we've bought, bought a player who, who can come in and replace Laurent Koscielny when needed because that's been the issue, isn't it? He's not been fit for um, parts of this season because of his, his injury issue. And um, when he hasn't been there, we haven't had a player to replace him directly. Nacho Monreal has, has been the closest to him in terms of his style. But, you know, he, as we all know, he's, he's a left-back by trade. He hasn't been as bad as some people have made out, perhaps. That's not his natural position. And um, we'll see how he does because he needs to adapt to our... Our way of playing, English way of playing, well, the English league, I should say. So it might take a few weeks, perhaps, but it's nice to have more options in there now. The the balance in that position looks better now. We've got, we've got Per and um, Callum Chambers behind him, the same sort of style players. And then we've got Laurent Koscielny and Gabriel. Dreams can come true and all that. So the performance at Brighton was, was very enjoyable, especially the first half. And one Thomas Rosicki. A superb display from him. Um, I'm a big fan of his, as as you may or may not know already. Very pleasing to see him playing in that way. I mean, he's made himself almost undroppable with a performance like that. Scoring a goal and making making a goal and just working as hard as he as he's doing. So I don't know. Don't know what the boss is going to do when it comes to Villa on the weekend. How he's going to fit in fit him in and Ozil's returning to fitness and Walcott as well. So. Big decisions for the manager on for the weekend. So enough of all that from from me. Um, hand you over to the guys. Enjoy the discussion and up the Arsenal. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision podcast, our weekly podcast. Star date January twenty seventh. We're going to cover a few interesting topics this week. There's been plenty happening. Uh, between the FA Cup, the FA Cup draw, and some exciting signings potentially coming to fruition. And to match that level of excitement, we have a guest today, uh, Ars Blog, or his uh, Kent Clark name, Andrew Mangan, will be joining us, will play a key role in our conversations today. Elliot, our normal host, uh, Yankee Gunner, is on sabbatical this week, so he's frozen up in Minneapolis somewhere with all the weather that's going on over here. The nice thing about America is we have real weather. None of that. It's raining a bit more this week than it was last week. Rubbish I have in Ireland and England. Um, anyway, so Elliot's taking a little breather this week. I, Poznan, uh, will be uh, leading the charge, ably assisted by my good colleague on the show, the regular uh, James Sego at GoonerFanatic49. So that's our lineup for today. Welcome today guys welcome andrew thank you for joining us my pleasure and welcome james Woo-hoo. 
<laughs> that's that's my call-in sound. Anyway, not to worry. So anyway, <laughs> I thought guys, we were doing a role reversal today. Oh, that's right, we are. <laughs> so kicking off, I'm not going to be nearly as flowery as Elliot, but we'll, we'll make it work between us lads. Um, Andrew, um, mm. we had a very exciting effort. You can't really look at the game this weekend on its own. It was part of the context of all the other matches and all the other uh, four or so major teams out of the, the Premier League that managed to trip and fall over. And the other two major teams, you might say, are currently uh, lining up to do an FA Cup replay. But what did you make of the, uh, the weekend from an FA Cup standpoint? Hilarious. Wasn't it great? <laughs> Hilarious. I, I was I was a bit keen not to go overboard on Saturday when when all the hilarious, the really hilarious stuff happened, because I was mindful of the fact, obviously, that we had to play on Sunday and cup football. And if you've been an Arsenal fan for long enough, you'll know that we've had our moments as well. Yeah. So uh, I was just playing it, taking it a bit easy. But after we won, I just thought it was the funniest thing of all time, particularly what happened to Chelsea. I know that Tottenham losing with a goalkeeping mistake in extra time is always brilliant. Um, Manchester City went off to Abu Dhabi in midweek and thought they could just come back and roll over Berm or uh, Middlesbrough. You know, the hubris and the arrogance of that. That's also funny to see them taking down a peg. But Mourinho having to stand there and watch his team, which was 2-0 up, lose 4-2 to a uh, Bradford team, which played them off the park played brilliant football, scored great goals, and won 4-2. They did what no other team has done to Mourinho in his entire career. He's never lost a two-goal lead at home uh, in, his, in his career. So I think that was just absolutely outstanding. Um, and then, of course, we won on top of that. So all good. It was tremendous entertainment, i got to say. James, your thoughts? To see Southampton... Spurs, City, Chelsea, not only get knocked out, but in the fashion in which they did. And all four of those sides were at home, which was which is sort of added to the, the miracle of the day that it was. Um, you know, obviously, you know, from Mourinho's point of view, the day before, uttering the fact that it would be re- regarded as somewhat of a disgrace going in to then lead 2-0 at the bridge and, and go behind 4-2 was, I mean, that, that really just topped it all off. And, and even, you know, even on top of that, you have, Liverpool, who drew at home, nil-nil to Bolton, so now having a away fixture. <laughs> and there was, there was some hilarity to be had in watching United struggle against um, the lowest team left in the comp- competition against Cambridge. Um, I, I must say, match of the day has never been more entertaining. And even on top of that, Sonogo was right at the heart of Southampton's demise, along with um, the ex-Arsenal boy, Chamac. So it was, uh, it was a fantastic Saturday. Yeah, I mean, Sonogo, um, it, it was just great. There was just entertainment in every corner. If you, could, if you could bottle one FA Cup weekend, you know, whatever happens from here on in, this was just, it was just priceless. And, you know, Sonogo had that opportunity where uh, he gets a deflection of, I don't know, if, was it the guy's head? And then he creates the, the first goal for Shemak. I mean, it was just all over the place. It was just superb Arsenal entertainment. 
But to come back to the game a little bit, obviously one of the things we've started to do recently is to score first, which is really, really nice, and probably screwed up Brighton Hove Albion's master plan. They've probably been working for the last seven days, parking three buses with the basis that they were going to frustrate the Bejesus out of us, and Theo scores in the first minute or so. And I guess to uh, kind of set up the question a little bit, Andrew, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, on the Twitters and other things about Oxley Chamber and his contribution and he's been great but he hasn't scored goals and he's kind of been do- lower down the assists list he's more the assister to the assist and occasionally the assister whereas Theo when he hits uh, full flight is the assister or the scorer and that kind of came to pass and wrote the script for the day would you agree? Mm, yeah to a certain extent I mean I think what's if you were to ask anyone who's the better all-round footballer, I think Oxley chamberlain is the guy, you know, who's who's got more vision, um, he's stronger, he can play uh, more varied roles within the team, he's better on the ball, with the ball at his feet. But Walcott is this strange kind of a player who sometimes looks like it's his first ever game of football and you're looking at him going... What what the fuck is going on here? And then he scores, or he he'll put in a great cross for somebody to assist. I remember the the six three game against Manchester City last season. I was thinking, oh god, this you know we're playing terrible. And then he just popped up out of nowhere and he scored. Well, he might have scored two that day. And that's the that's what for, I don't know if it frustrates me about Theo Walcott because there are many times where he's got the ball at his feet, and I think there were examples against Brighton where if he'd had a just made a simple pass, one to his left and one to his right, he would have set up goal-scoring opportunities for for teammates. And it's not as if they were particularly difficult things to do. But then he scores a goal like that in the first few minutes and he's just got end product despite the limitations to his game. So I think think he's – he needed the goal for sure – and I know it's still early in his comeback, uh, and you'd like to think that his all-round game will will improve a bit, but he is just one of those players. I think there are times when Arsene Wenger leaves him out of the side because he's aware of some of the limitations of his game, but ends up putting him back in because he's a guy who who can get you goals. Not necessarily out of nothing, but perhaps when you don't really expect them. He's a strange player. I don't quite know what to ever make of him, really. He is. I always think of him as, you know, people go on about him being one-dimensional or two-dimensional or whatever. I think he's kind of like two-and-a-half-dimensional. He's improved. He has, you can see he works on his game and he's got better at better as at strengthening his weaknesses. Mm. But his two-and-a-half dimensions are really good. The couple of things he does really well. Uh, you know, when you look at that goal, I mean, that's an angle that many of our players have not scored from. But he got that ball down, swung around and hit it so quickly. The goalkeeper got his fingers to it. But Theo, his feet are so quick, he got that shot shot off some, so straight and quick that the mm. goalkeeper couldn't quite stop it. And in, most other players don't get the shot off that quickly. What were, what were your thoughts, Yeah, I mean, James? look, it's, it's, sorry, sorry, Andrew, go, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's, a, it's an absolutely fantastic finish. Yeah. Instinctive, gave the keeper no chance. You know, I, and I think that's probably what Arsenal need to do is if Walcott's in the team is be aware that they have to play to those strengths. Yeah. And that's maybe not given time to think about what he has to do, but just put him in a position where he has to do something. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. It does. James? Yeah, I mean, one of the great things with Theo is he's, you know, he's every fantasy holder's dream. 
um, certainly when he's fully fit. He's an extremely productive player. His output is fantastic. His statistics from goals and assists is excellent, especially as someone who's a wide forward. But a lot of that tends to be because of his very his, his supremely intelligent runs that often lead him into the center. You see sometimes he'll come out to the left, he'll move around a lot, but he'll take very advanced positions on the field, even when we're defending. He's the player that you, you anticipate that as soon as we get the ball back, he's one of the first people that we look to hit. So he, he offers a very... What I think is very interesting is he offers a very different dynamic to Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. And they're, they're both, to a certain degree, very similar players, but they're also very, very, very different players. They're both very quick. Currently, Alex is playing very much as that wide, uh, right wide forward. Um, but Alex is a lot more... He's a lot more efficient on the ball. He's a lot more industrious. He he adds to the team a lot more, I think, when we're when we're playing perhaps the bigger sides because he's he's got that strength and that slightly stronger defensive discipline, and he's got that ability more so than Theo certainly to carry the ball from deep um, to to create that little bit of space. And I think he's got a, he's got a better you know he's got slightly better vision and slightly better ability to play the ball out and and find those pockets of space for other players. He's got. Yes, he's he's certainly slightly more of a visionary than Theo, but on the opposite, uh, but the the slight deficit to his game or deficiency in his game is that you, unfortunately, despite the amount of times we said we we've remarked on how strong his performances have been, we we tend to see very little end product, and perhaps that's slightly to do with the fact that he's he's you know still a somewhat young player, um, who needs perhaps just a couple a couple of goals to really sort of kickstart. Um, those kind of um, productive aspects of his game, um, whereas Theo, on the other hand, he's you imagine against the smaller teams, um, he, he's a player that you, you would expect to probably start against, given just how how lethal he can be. I think also, you know, we have to obviously um, temper it with the fact that Theo's just come back from a significantly long injury, um, and it takes various players, um, you know, different differing times to sort of fully recover to their a full fitness, but full sort of mental capacity, if, for want of a better word, in the sense that that mental, the decision making on the field, that, that quickness of thought, that, that's something that I imagine probably is, is the longest to, to come back to a professional footballer, especially after so long out from the game. Um, and I think you, we saw that pretty clearly in, in the Brighton game in that his finish was excellent, but it was excellent because he had very little time to think. Whereas in previous games, He's had, I would say, far more guilt-edged opportunities, um, especially against Hull, for example, um, where he's he's missed the target by a significant distance. And I think that's part of the adjustment to the to coming back from from injury that is going to take still a little bit more time. But I, there are still plenty of examples of Theo from you know when he's been fully fit, when he's been um, in form, so to speak, where his his finishing in general, you know, all round tends to be probably one of the strongest on the team aside from maybe Alexis now. Um, so that's extremely exciting. I'm, I'm interested to see the dynamic between the two of, of Alex and Theo and I think that gives not only two, having two you know, great squad depth but also the variety of options that Wenger has at his disposal. Yeah, uh, interesting points. I mean, it, it, to your point about you know, when he regains full form, it's felt like the last time he did a long layoff it was about six games before he really hit his stride he was in the team maybe five or six times where he was missing a lot of chances. Then he suddenly hit form. He was around for a few games, and then he had this other next long injury. So maybe that's what we're looking at here, five or six games of Theo getting a good run or a start before he's he's hitting full form. Does anybody remember that video they had on the 
the dot com. It was like a dance competition, and I, I don't know who was in it, but it was a couple of other guys and Theo, and apparently all the players did it. And it was basically like practically dance, dance revolution. You basically had to move your feet really quickly. And it was one more thing where feet, Theo's feet were just super quick. You know, he has the speed, but he has a quickness to his movement of feet, which is his real strength rather than maybe close control. But that goal, you know, there was a bit of close control, which was sometimes surprising with Theo, sometimes not. And then the speed at which he got a shot off just seemed to be the, the turning point. So with that said, um, obviously the man of the match, Super Tom Rosicki. Um, what hasn't been said at this stage in that game? Um, Andrew, he's a, a player I love to love, and I think we all kind of do. And we, we've, In a way, we missed out on his golden years. Mm. What do you think could have been had he not had that tendon dangling around his leg that nobody thought to reattach? It's a good question, isn't it? You, you can't help but think what might have been with Rosicki, but I think also the, the problems that the team had during the years that he was missing wouldn't have been solved necessarily by his presence and his presence alone. No. If, you know? Um I think he's I think he's a tremendous player. I think he's a brilliant example for young players and I hope that all the the younger professionals are watching him how he trains, how he lives, how he plays the game, the energy that he puts in, the desire, the willingness to be brave on the football pitch to make things happen not to be safe. I think there was something very recently where Gilles Grimondi was talking about scouting. Mm and the use of data and, and statistics in scouting. And he said that if I'm a young player now, what do I do? If I'm a midfielder, I make sure that I make all the passes. But do you, do you make the brave passes then? Because mm. anyone can pass it sideways and backwards and have a high pass completion rate. And I think what you see with a player like Rosicki is he always wants to make something happen. Uh, you know, with his burst of speed, he tries to drive past people between the lines to to open up defenses. He's just when he's on form, and he was on form obviously against against Brighton on Sunday. He's just an absolute pleasure to watch. And we've got a number of those players in the team now. We've got him. We've got Casorla. We've got Alexis, uh, Mesut Ozil as well. When he turns it on, he's great to watch. Um, I, I, I'm sorry that he's 34 now and that this is probably going to be his last season with us, but it's great to see somebody of his age um, make, a, make a real impact on the team over the last few weeks. You know, he's been out of the team for most of the season, yeah. despite being fit for the most part. The manager hasn't seen a place for him, and now that he's been given a chance, he's, he's taken it, and I think that's, I think that's a, a great example to the young players as well. Yeah. What did you make of Phil Neville's comments? When, when I first heard them, I was kind of angry. Then I watched the clip and I thought, ah, he's kind of joking. It's, it's been a bit jokey. But then as mm. I thought about it more, it's kind of, it's almost insidious that w what that jokiness said was, he wasn't really joking that that's what he would do. Yeah, that, I, that I, I, we, yeah go ahead. Yeah, we discussed that on the on the Arscast Extra on, on Monday, myself and James. And I think it's, even if he was joking, and I think he was joking, you know, I think he was mm. just trying to uh, be a bit of a lad. But I mm. think you're right in that it it speaks to a mindset mm. that's very prevalent in the English game. It's not a case of 
look at what Rosicki did, I'm A, going to try and copy that, or B, try and teach another young player how to do that. It's no, I'll I'll stop him through an act of violence. Um, and I, I don't know if you saw the game on BT Sport on Sunday that Robbie Savage was commentating. Robbie Savage's um, advice to the Brighton players was to, to start doing professional fouls, to kick the Arsenal players into row Z. When they came off at halftime, the punditry was about how Brighton needed to, to clatter the Arsenal players. They needed to, to um, you know, to, 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 to foul them, essentially, to let them know that they're there. And look, I think all of us like a, a physical game of football and we accept that it's a physical game. And if you're a team like Brighton playing against a team like Arsenal, that you've got to be aggressive, you've got to be physical, uh, you've got to work hard, you've got to make life difficult for the opposition because otherwise with the football that they can play, they'll they'll do you, you know, uh, 99 times out of 100. Um, so you do have to be physical. But when the, when the advice from pundits, from commentators, from co-commentators, from people analyzing the game who have time to think about it afterwards is be violent, mm -hmm. then I think they need to really reassess, A, who they're having on these programs, and B, the kind of language that they're allowed to use. Because it does just speak to this, this particularly English mindset of, well, if you can't beat them snap them in two you know and i think that's i think that's the unfortunate thing about neville's comments i don't think he you know was advocating it but it just it just go, goes to the heart of of the way that people think about the game in england or too many people think about the game in england yeah i mean he wasn't advocating it you could say but he made it acceptable that the correct answer to somebody playing great stylish football is to do the most dangerous thing you can do in a football match how did you feel about it james um well it's it's frustrating not only in those sort of two separate examples and andrew, andrew put it extremely well but it, it's a fairly recurring theme across a large section of of the punditry and an analysis that we see in a lot of games and it's Especially, you know, having followed a club, I'm sure it's happened to, to various other clubs as well, that's, that's witnessed the injuries that have occurred to Diaby, which has effectively completely ruined his career. Um, that of Aaron Ramsey and, and Eduardo, of course. And, you know, of, of those three, fortunately, Aaron's been able to make the recovery after a long period of time. But it's, it's those aspects of the game that can really just destroy a, um, a footballer's career. And what's so frustrating is, of course, we need to respect and it's, um, and it's a very important part of the game, the physical and aggressive component of it. And it, it's, you know, it's, we, we, we hark back to kind of the, the United and Arsenal battles between Keane and Vieira um, and, and that aggressive component to it. But the, the, type, the, the way in which the, these analysts or these pundits um, encourage, encourage aggression or physicality tends to be through extremely dangerous means, you know, talking about a double-footed challenge, professional fouls, parts of the game that really, it, you know, the FA appears to be trying to, well, to a certain degree, uh, push, pushing out of the game as a whole. Um, and on top of that, what's, what's, what's further frustrating is often it, it, it appears to me at least that the analysis doesn't, it isn't concerned by the beauty of the football that's created, but instead the attention is directed very much towards this you know, macho, aggressive um, aspect of the game, which um, which is is reported in in a, in a fairly despicable manner. I've got to be honest. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not like there is that there's only one way to play the game of football either. You know, I don't think you can be a purist and say everybody should try and play tiki-taka, beautiful, fast-flowing football because uh, some teams just don't have the players to do that. There's more than one way to, to win a game of football. And if you look even at what Arsenal did against Manchester City, that was a containment job. That was a defensive uh, display where Arsenal got stuck in. But it didn't cross the line into into uh you know to to really bad challenges and things like that you know yeah. so there's there's a there's obviously room for playing the game in all these different ways but it's the the idea that because somebody does something exceptional because somebody does something skillful that the reaction to that should be to to smash them and to whack them into the stand you know you even see um what happened to Matthew Debushi you know it's a small thing but it's a violent act yeah, and people say, "Oh no, look, you know, it was just it was just a little push. If it happened in the middle of the park, it, you know, nobody would have said anything." The point is, it didn't happen in the middle of the park. It happened in an area where a player could get seriously injured. The unfortunate thing, from our point of view, is that Debushi got injured. And there isn't enough, to my mind, there isn't enough focus on players' responsibilities to one another. Because what happens if mm. um, the 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 guy? Who the right back or the left back from Brighton who got skinned by Callum Chambers? What happens if next time he goes through Chambers and puts him into the stand or into the into the hoardings and 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 injures a young player? You know, there's got to be ways of dealing with skillful play that don't involve violence, and that is what they should be talking about, and that's what they should be teaching young players, yeah. and that's the way that's the way they should be talking to audiences about it, not to not to commit an act that's a foul. You know, I think sometimes you you you're you're in a position as a player where you've got no choice but to make a foul, and we all accept that. But that is that it is the first answer to somebody who might be better than you. Then I, you know, I think so people have got their priorities really wrong. Yeah, and when you look at, you know, I heard the well, if it had happened in the middle of the park um, angle before, but apart from just the the. The landscape of of where it happened and why that contributed to the to the injury, uh, you know, it was kind of a sucker punch because you're plowing into somebody who thinks the play's over. It's like hitting somebody after the bell, and so I thought it yeah, was exactly. I th- thought it was pretty low. The injury happened because Debushi thought it was kind of game over for a little bit before the uh, it restarts, and that's why he got completely screwed over. So. Yeah, he was uh, cold was clocked low. essentially. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was low, but yeah. anyway, as as Arson says, we can't really judge um, people's motives. But that kind of st- if if we want to keep the best players on the pitch so that spectators can enjoy the football, Debushi needs to be protected, and that guy needs to be punished, uh, regardless of the fact that we might be able to judge. We don't judge most people's motives most of the time with these tackles, you know, what was he thinking when he went in with two feet? I, I don't really care. He went in with two feet and his, mm. his studs showing. So, yeah. you know, consequences should follow actions. But to kind of lead that onto something, so we're now looking at Gabriel Polista, who by, I think, common consent is about to sign for us and, and join. And I'd add into that uh, factor, we've got, Giroud back, who seems to be uh, renewed, revitalized, coming in at a a level 2.0 compared to how he played before. We've got a beefed up Ozil coming in. 
we just seem a little beefier these days coming back to being able to hand out that side of the game. Uh, I mean, I think we're beginning to realise part of what Giroud's been doing for us in recent times, apart from the fact he's actually scoring goals, is he's out there battling, knocking against centre-backs, making space for other players. We now have more players who've scored for us than any other team with our one-man team. And part of that is the battling somebody like a Giroud does to make space for your Rositskis, your Ozils, etc., to get their goals. But do you think we're going to be a more steely team um, with with now Giroud in our spine, with Polista potentially kind of adding to our medal as we go forward? And, of course, maybe the biggest factor of all, Coquelin, over the next three, four months. What, what are your thoughts on that, Andrew, and then James? Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting, not not so much that Giroud has been more physical, but I think he's been more inclined to get on with the game mm. because there were times where he'd take a hit off a defender and sit there and wait for a free kick, which was never going to come. And I think he's he's now finally realized that half the time you're not going to get those free kicks. You might as well just get up and get on with the game and maybe give it a little back. Yeah, You know, get, you know use your own physical strength to hold off a, a defender. Um you know, I think I think we've been accused, perhaps a little bit unfairly, um, of being soft. You know, I think there have been games where we've been bullied a little bit. You know, but I think it becomes something of a trope. You know, I, I don't doubt that we could be more physical and we could have a bit more physicality in in our team. But I don't think we're the the weaklings all mm-hmm. the time that that people Great. like yeah. to make out. Um, but yeah, I, I like what Coquelin does actually. I've, you know, obviously been surprised like most people that he, that he came back and took the chance that he was given so well, he likes to get stuck in. He's a physical, robust player. Um, a little worry perhaps that he's maybe a little, um, what's the word I should use here? Indiscreet. Perhaps I don't know. He can be a bit... He likes jumping in the air a bit too much as he's going in for a tackle. And I think if, if uh, somebody can just take him to one side and just get, get him to rein in that little bit, you don't want to take away his his commitment. But I think he is. He's a more effective tackler than Flamini, for example, who people would say is a, is a physical player, somebody who, who likes to get stuck in. But, you know, I think uh, a lot of it is is why we've been perceived as a team that's weak is because it's it goes back to what we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. is that it was the only way that certain teams could stop Arsenal that that was by by being physical and overly physical at times that was a way to counter the football that Arsenal played because they couldn't necessarily cope with it uh, from a footballing point of view but look i i think we've got a, a reasonably sized team now paulista's in there uh, you know, Koscielny's a big guy. He's he's quite aggressive. Coquelin's in there. You know, the other players don't shirk their responsibilities either. Yeah. You're seeing Ozil bulk up, uh, Giroud, uh, Alexis. You know, he gets booted mm. around the place and just gets up again. And uh, you know, he, he'll he'll give a bit back too. So yeah, I mean, I think we're 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 getting to a point where you'd like to think we're in we're in pretty good shape. So. Yeah, we've more. Uh, we'll options. see, and yeah, we've yeah, we more, more options, options. and, and yeah. the form isn't bad either. I think we've in the last ten games we've won eight, lost one, and drawn one. Mm-hmm. And the one that we lost was at Southampton on New Year's Day. And I don't know if you can call it an accident, but in the in the grand scheme of things, it's not necessarily reflective of the form that we're in at the moment. Mm-hmm. So James um, Coquelin came on in our uh, game against Brighton Hove Albion. Uh, and seemed to be a noticeable upgrade. Uh, I, I don't like beating up on Flamini. I think he's done a 
the best job he could and seriously put all of his abilities into doing the DM job, which is maybe not actually what he was born to be in life. But um, certainly Cockland seemed to come on admittedly late in the game and by comparison prove the point at the moment as to who the go-to guy is. Would, would you agree with that? Certainly. I think that was also aided by the fact that through bringing on Cockland, it meant we had two deeper playing midfielders in mm-hmm. the team. So the actual structure we had in place meant that uh, um, as Brighton sort of broke or uh, attacked with the ball, we you always had at least one or if not the, the two of Mathieu and, and um, Lecoq um, in front of both Koscielny and Mertesacker. And that, that shield proved to be um, too much for Brighton to be able to handle. I don't as once Cockland came on, I don't really remember feeling under much pressure at all, aside from the sort of, you know, the the handball, uh, you know, where the ball to hand on, on chambers towards the end of the game. Um and so a lot of that was a structure, but also a lot of that was down to um, you know, what Cockerlan brought brought into the game, which is his athleticism. There was a couple of times where um we took the ball forward, and and as we kind of pen them into their own box, as and once clearing the ball, you could see that even up against, I think it was Grady, uh, quite a tall, physical um, boy, Cochrane was he was able to outjump him. He was able to sort of regurgitate possession. I don't actually buy into the fact that his um, his technical ability on the ball is all that poor. I think his his distribution is has been slowly improving over the last couple of games. His ability to push the ball forward. Um, and you know, as, as you guys have mentioned, his 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 ability to go into the tackle is phenomenal. His he's got you know, especially compared to that of Mathieu and certainly Mikel Arteta, he's got he possesses a decent amount of pace. Um, and it, I think he very much suits the setup. It's 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 definitely a team, in my opinion, that relative to the last few seasons certainly has that you know that bite a little bit more bite, a little bit more steel grit. Mm. Etc. You look at the introduction of a Danny Welbeck, who's he's phys- extremely physical, extremely industrious from the front. Alexis, despite his height, he's a very feisty player. Um, I think Andrew was, was on point with um, when discussing Oli Giroud. You know, he he's always been a physical lad, but kind of the emotions he would he would display when going down to the floor and often complaining, often gave I think defenders that little. Um, extra impetus to to sort of get in on Giroud, but I think he takes it a lot better now, and I think he's able to sort of to give it back. I think he he, he has that appreciation of the, you know has a slightly better understanding of the league, and he's he's certainly a player that you know we, the stats are often show that at, at Montpellier that he was a player that's that has improved from season to season, and um, he certainly seems to have you know have gone another step forward as well since um, coming back from his injury, and he's. Fantastic asset to have. I mean, I don't, I don't know all that much about Paulista, but from the, you know, the various little kind of like YouTube videos, but in particular, kind of the, the match, the, the individual match highlights where, uh, you know, some, someone puts together just all the all the individual bits of a, of a, of a specific player for that match, even if it, if half of it includes a sort of like a square pass across to the other centre back. He seems to be a very quick. A pretty physical player. He seems like a strong boy, um, and I'm sure he, you know, he, he he seems like on the face of it, on paper, I don't know much about him, but um, the, you know, almost like the exact type of, of of player that we've been looking to add to add to the squad, and I think that's fantastic going forward because it's it's not a Kim Kalstrom, which aside from his his strange back injury and 
um, perhaps his deficiency as, as a player as a whole. It's not, it's not a short gap solution. This is very much a long-term addition to the squad, which is perhaps one of the most surprising aspects of this acquisition, given it's the January transfer window. Yeah. I actually quite liked Kimmy, but then I'm a bit weird. So here's what Thierry Henry said about Paulista. He's tall and pacey. Uh, sorry, I was going to say tall and pasty. I don't think that's relevant. Tall he, is, and pasty. he is quite pasty, though. <laughs> For a Brazilian, it's all relative. Tall yeah. and pasty, the former Arsenal captain said, Arsenal are going to get a, a young but polished player. I've heard he is a special talent, which makes me think Thierry Henry has YouTube and Twitter. So I guess nobody really knows too much about this uh, Gabriel Paulista, but... So, Andrew, what do you think of the state of our squad now in terms of near completion? Uh, Jeremy Wilson had a piece today, I don't know if you saw, talking about Morgan Schneiderlin as being the target for the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, Czech Teode being a possibility <laughs> this, uh, this window. Who uh, I, really? I, I kind of like him, but he doesn't, he's not what we need. And he's, you know, it's kind of like the Kadira thing. He'd be a physical presence in midfield, but not necessarily where we need that. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I don't see that one happening. Um, so, where do you see the squad? Um, how do you see how we're f- fixed for the, the kind of run into this? the end of the season we're we're in three competitions you could say two competitions uh two and a half competitions um you go back about a a month and a half or so and everybody was putting the noose around their neck that our you know our our season was shot at that point and i i i guess in a way that's still true you know we're not going to win the premier league but mm. there there's a resurgent optimism about this being potentially a fun season for us given the maybe where the squad's at where the res- form is starting to be where the results are and given the competitions we're still in uh in some form or fashion i think the the the, the key thing this january was to get another central defender because that's mm. where we were weakest we were really weak there i think you know in terms of the squad depth and that we've done something i know it's not official yet but as we're speaking, um, but I think that was the main thing. I was never convinced or I never thought that he was going to buy a central midfielder in the in the January window. I never saw that as a, a genuine possibility, uh, even though he's brought in the young guy, uh, Christian Bielik, uh, the young Legia Warsaw boy, but I, I think he's one for next season or the season after, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, the emergence of Coquelin has made that a less pressing issue for him I think he would have ridden it out nonetheless uh, between now and, and May or now and the end of January uh, because if he if his main target is Morgan Schneiderlin then I think the only way you're going to get that deal done is in the summer so he's obviously prepared to wait to get the man that he wants in the summer um, I think we were a top heavy squad we're a bit more balanced now now that we've got uh, Gabriel uh, in. He provides a bit of depth and cover at central defense. The midfield looks relatively good. Uh, Wilshire will be coming back, obviously. Um, I don't think we'll see Arteta for a while, but uh, if Coquelin can keep up what he's doing, then fine. We've got Rizisky, who's resurging. Kazorla, who's playing brilliantly. Ozil has come back. We've got Oxlade-Chamberlain. We've got Walcott. Uh, you know, you're looking at Alexis, Welbeck, Giroud, um, 
so I think it, I think it's in good shape. I think it's in good shape. And as I was saying, you know, the form hasn't been bad in in recent weeks. So we've got to try and keep that and and build on this little bit of momentum that we've got going, because I think what you can see maybe at what Liverpool did last season. Liverpool went on a ridiculous run of wins, didn't they? They won something like twelve or thirteen games in a row mm. to shoot up the table and and almost almost win the title. Now I don't think that can happen from our point of view. I don't think we're going to do that. But you know, if we can win nine or nine or ten games of the next eleven or twelve, a few draws in there, you know, it, it would make our our race for the top four. Uh, a lot easier or it certainly put us in a, in a decent position. So I'm happy enough to be honest. I mean, I think, um, I think there are still one or two issues, but I don't see anything else happening between now and the end of the month in, in terms of transfers. Mm. Andrew, a quick question for you. So, uh, you've yeah. been around the block a bit and you know, the journalistic landscape pretty well. When Jeremy Wilson talks, what are you thinking on a personal level? Do you think the club has opened the kimono to him? Is it kind of like orange, a, a kind of, a chatty um, uh, David Ornstein, Do, you know, when yeah, he, I mean, yeah, I mean, guys like Jeremy and and John Cross and the the guys who work uh, James Ollie from the Standard, you know, they they're on the Arsenal beat every week, so they're well in in touch with the the press office. And sometimes there are stories that come out. You know, you see all of a sudden um, there's a guy who works for the Mail as well. I can't remember his name, but you know, you'll you'll come eleven o'clock at night over here, and then the Telegraph, the Mirror, the Mail, the Sun, probably as well. Uh, maybe the Independent. They all have the same story. Mm. All have the same exclusive. And there's only one way that can happen mm. is that there's one source that has fed all all these people. In terms of transfers, I think there's a lot of obfuscation and and misinformation that goes around. Um, I think sometimes a club will use that to its own advantage by saying there's nothing happening when they're trying to do something quietly. Sometimes they'll say there's nothing happening when there's actually nothing happening. Other times they might talk about how there are things going on when perhaps there aren't just because they know that's what people want to hear. So the the thing about it is, particularly with transfer stories, is that so much can go wrong with a transfer right up until the contract is signed that you could have all the best information in the world, but you're left with egg on your face when it doesn't happen. Mm. You know, there are deals that get right to the finishing line and then just fall down. Uh, and that's not unusual. And then all the talk is, well, you know, it's just just paper bullshit. There's a lot of there is a lot of absolute shit out there. Of course, people who are just making up nonsense day in day out. And I think everybody knows who who those people are. But but guys like John, like Jeremy, who are working with the club. I won't say with the club. That's the wrong word. But they're they're working very closely. Uh, with Arsenal in a way, you know, they're there every week. They're at the, the pregame press conferences, the postgame press conferences. You know, they do have a relationship with the club and they're, they're, the information that they have, it's up to people whether or not they want to take it or leave it. But, you know, I don't think that for the most part, these guys are just making stuff mm. up, mm. you know. Yeah. Some of them are. Some of them are. But I don't think those th those people that just make stuff up aren't the ones that are sitting in front of Arsene Wenger every week and who have, uh, you know, a separate press briefing with him after the main press conference and all that. I don't think, you know. But it's up to people to judge on, on the information, I guess. Yeah. Well, after my little detour there, James, I'm, I'm looking at the fixture list and back to kind of our 
optimism or otherwise for the rest of the season. So we've got Villa coming up at the weekend. We've got uh, Spurs away. We've got Leicester City at home. We've got Middlesbrough in the FA Cup. We've got Crystal Palace. Uh, that's, that's February. February 25th, we have our first Champions League leg at home to Monaco. So an interesting February. Nobody too scary. Obviously, Monaco in the Champions League will be a, a significant challenge. And uh, Spurs away is going to be a tough game. But, but uh, you know, you're always going to have something like that. A run really all the way through to, I don't know, Liverpool, who look like they got their teeth back on April 4th. Um, we've got a couple of months here where we could make some good... Hon- uh, headway in the competitions. What? How are you feeling about it? Well, Paul, I think you'll be extremely surprised to hear that I'm rather optimistic about this side. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> um, I think I said a couple of months ago that come earliest February, um, the large majority of the Arsenal fan base would probably be pretty content with the way things are going. Um, and I still very much stand by that. I think you know, it's a little too early to be talking about going on runs, you know, in a very diplomatic manner. One one has to sort of take each game as it comes. But the fixture list certainly looks like a fairly, I guess for want of a better word, but a fairly sort of pleasant fi- um, few fixtures coming up. I think throughout February we don't actually leave London um, since our yeah. only away games yeah. are Spurs and, and Crystal Palace. Um, so that, that certainly helps. We've got plenty of home games. Um and you'd you'd have to think that a lot of the signs that we have coming up are, are very beatable. And one of the most exciting things, and I think you know Theo Walcott's been around Arsene Wenger for a little too long, perhaps when uh when in his interview he said that the the, the new players it was, you know it was like a few, a few new signings back in the dressing room, um, the classic lands comment from Theo. Mm. Um, but I think the biggest indication from the Brighton game was when you looked at that team sheet, despite there having been, having been seven changes mm. from that of a team that beat City at the Etihad 2-0, um, aside from perhaps Matthew Fl- Flamini and maybe to a certain degree Callum Chambers, given that he's, he's been a little up and down with his performances at right back, it, you know, it was a very, very strong team. And it was an exciting team because there was, there's the added excitement of, of, of A, seeing, you know, uh, the players of, of Walcott's and Ozil's stature, especially Ozil, um, but you know, coming back from injury and injury and seeing and sort of you know w- watching them get back into form, and especially you know having a player like Thomas Rosicki, we just seem to have a a, a gluttony of of fantastic um, attacking central midfielders, and I think there's there's plenty to be extremely positive about with this squad. There's there's a lot of attacking talent. The introduction of Gabriel Paulista, we'll have to see how he adjust to you know he's not only got to adjust to the league he's got obviously just his new surroundings and even more importantly we've seen a lot this season it's been a very it's been a strong demonstration of just how important partnerships and solidarity especially at the back and how big a role that can play um for a team team as such and obviously the lack of a center back has been has has played a, a significant role in in you know to a certain degree, our, our demise at the beginning half of the season, but even more so has just been the, the fluctuation of of different defenders coming in, 
because I think you know most hopefully sane Arsenal fans would would probably attest that Monreal hasn't actually been anywhere near as poor a centre back as someone have you suggest. But the issue has been it's just you, you have often those those kind of growing pains as such as, as as new partnerships build. You had you've had Monreal play alongside Murdaseka. I think Monreal and Koscielny was one of the first times certainly this season that they've played together. Despite you know two players who are individually quite strong, when you when you put them together as a unit and you have maybe a match of Flamini ahead of them, it it, it, it throws things th- throws things a little bit up in the air. So you, if if the if the back line can stay fairly steady for the rest of the season, that's a big if. Um, and you know if, you know, even if it doesn't, hopefully if, if Gabriel Polisa can can settle in and adjust fairly quickly, you'd you'd have to think that we have a very very strong chance of you know of not only having a, a good run good end to the season, but the FA Cup looks like a competition where we're we're probably the fairly strong favourites for now. Um, we certainly wouldn't expect us to go necessarily too far in the Champions League, but with with a tie like Monaco, you you want to take that. That's that competition step by step, and see if maybe we can progress a little further than we have in in the past few seasons. And I think you know, even if we hypothetically finish say third in the league, um, but off the back of a long run of, of very good results, which is certainly more than plausible, I think there'll be significant reasons for Arsenal fans to be very optimistic about going into the the next season, and, and even for now to just be um, extremely positive about about the up- upcoming fixtures and the upcoming performances from the team. Good stuff. So, Andrew, to get back into the little uh, nitty-gritty stuff a little bit, so obviously one of the ongoing debates is the, if you want to call it the Ozil debate. Now, Mm -hmm. interestingly, he's come back a bit beefier, a bit meatier, and maybe I'm reading too much into the tea leaves, but the few minutes he's played, he's seemed to want to get a little bit more stuck in. But I guess my question is, right now, Cazorla's on fire, and mm-hmm. in the in the past, it was fitting Ozil, Wilshire, Ramsey uh, into the same team, and Ozil getting pushed out to the left. Maybe when I look at the the game against Brighton, and I look at the two goals, the first goal we had Theo, a kind of centre forward, uh, Giroud having dropped deep over to the the right touch line to feed Chambers, who runs up and puts it into Theo, who bangs it in. Uh, mm-hmm. I, can't rem- I can't remember where Ozil and Rosicki are, but one of them's right beside Theo. The second goal, you got Rosicki in midfield, but Ozil's kind of in the centre forward spot, and Theo's right next to him, and Giroud's dropped mm-hmm. off a little bit closer to Rosicki. Um, and, you know, kind of, kind of begs the question does it really matter where they s- stand at the start? And maybe it's maybe there's two parts to that against the best teams. Uh, maybe we're not going to have the same fluidity. So where, who's playing where really matters when you're playing Chelsea. But against most teams, they move around so much, they interchange so much, just get them all on the field and they'll find a way. W- what are your thoughts on the, the Ozil debate or the Ozil-Kazorla debate or the Ozil-Kazorla-Ramsey debate? Well, you know what? I think it's a first thing, it's a really healthy situation for Arsenal Football Club to be in. Imagine sitting here talking about how do you fit Mesut Ozil into your team? Imagine. Mm -hmm. You know, a few years ago we were going, oh, you know, you're looking at players like Danielson or Alex Song in the midfield. And, you know, now you're looking at how do you get Cazorla, Ramsey and Ozil 
and Alexis and Walcott and Oxlade Chamberlain and Rosicki, uh, you know, yeah. it's healthy. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is that I tend to agree with you in that I think they're good enough that the position they play in isn't hugely important. I think the the idea that Ozil on the left was a, a huge part of why we didn't perform in the early part of the season. I think that was kind of overplayed, you know. Yeah. Um, I do think he's better centrally. I don't think there's any doubt about that, but he played on, uh, I know it was Brighton, but, you know, he played on the left against Brighton, played pretty well. Like you say, where was he for the goal? He was in the center forward position. He was in the box, you know, with his back to goal, picking a pass up from a from another midfielder. Mm. So, you know, I think he's got the quality to play anywhere across that midfield, really, whether it's central, whether it's from the right, whether it's from the left. Um, how the manager does it, I don't quite know. I think he'll obviously decide based on the opposition that we're we're playing, whether he needs somebody like Ozil, who is more of a, who will keep the ball for you. Um, or if he wants to play a game more like Manchester City, where he wants to cede possession to the opposition, maybe that's not the, the, the right game for Ozil to be playing. I don't quite know, but look, I just think it's a really good situation for us to be in, and there'll be players who will rise to the challenge of the competition that's in the team. Maybe one or two won't, but um, I think all of us have been crying out for Arsenal to have more quality. Uh, we've got that now, and how it fits into the team is entirely down to the manager, and he's a guy that sees him every day in training and, and probably knows best how to do it, because right now, if you were to ask me, I don't really know mm. but i'm just glad that this is this is the problem rather than who the hell are we going to play we don't have any players because they're all on hospital beds and florence nightingale is off doing ether in the corner crying to herself so yeah there you go spot on james the ozil debate ah uh, the ozil debate my favorite debate um yeah i mean listen i think andrew's hit it on the nail it's it's an extremely healthy debate to be having. It's it, it it's it's a sort of a, it's one of the good headaches for the manager to have um, when selecting the team. But I, I'm not. I, I mean, again, as Andrew said, I'm not convinced that Özil's necessarily been as as poor on the left as some would have you suggest, especially given his tendency to come central. The only, the only you know somewhat concern I might have is is how it impacts on Santi's game, because when Santi's played centrally, he's actually come fairly deep he's picked the ball up in very deep areas he's he's actually as even for a player who has often been put out on the wide he's he's been someone that, that's taken up very central positions for a large majority of the game and obviously one of the fantastic um combinations we saw last year was that was the interchange between Santi coming left and Ozil coming and as we know these partnerships sometimes take a little a little bit of time to kind of reform and recalibrate so you know perhaps if we bring in Ozil on the left it's that's going to probably push out Oxley Chamberlain from the team. You maybe lose a little bit of of that extra pace that we have, especially with Giroud up top um, instead of Danny. Um, so you push out Alexis to the right. It does it does create, I suppose, perhaps a somewhat imbalance in the side in in the way in which we've been set up, or a change in the dynamic, perhaps. But certainly a very it's certainly a very strong change. It's a fantastic headache for the uh, manager to have, as I as I said and. It's you know it's something that we just got to play by ear. The the Urs is a, a fantastic player with you know top top quality as Arsenal attests, and um, 
I th- I think it will be just it will be something that's extremely exciting to see over the over the coming games how he manages to fit them all in, and even on top of that, I think you know once he does, you'll you look towards that bench and for the first time in in a long while, you can really look towards a few players and think, wow, I mean, if 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 the game's not going quite the way you think, you know, there's, there's there's there appears to be plenty of players that can really change the dynamic of the game and the um the path that the game's going down. So yeah. that that too is a uh, is a very exciting component of the side that we have coming uh, going forward. I always have to laugh when you uh, read on the dot com. You know, it'll be Oxlade Chamberlain discussing Walcott in the squad, or vice versa. And you're you're always reminded of the old adage that players love a really deep squad, except in their position. Yeah, true. So true, but yeah, yeah, we we do That's have the, we have it all over the pitch. Um, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Andrew. Well, no, no, I'm just going to say that that's, you know, that's what we want as fans. Yeah. And and maybe certain players are, are happy with that too, you know, because they thrive on a little bit of pressure and a little bit of competition. Um, and we don't seem to have too many of the sort of guy who are like throwing their toys out of the pram at the moment. So it's it, it seems healthy overall, you know. Yeah. The dressing room seems like a good place. So Speaking of which, uh, you kind of, touched on a few different things there but Chesney competition the dressing room etc what what do you, what's your read on the Chesney situation right now I think he's lost his place because he was stupid uh I I don't think his form was as bad as people were making out you know um there's always the desire for the shiny new thing and Ospina was that um I think some people don't quite like Chesney's attitude. I don't really have a problem with it. You know, I, I like a goalkeeper who can make a mistake and not be bewildered and broken by it, like Almunia, for example, or Fabianski, who, if they made a mistake, you know that it was the only thing they were thinking about, whereas Chesney seems well able to compartmentalize that. I think he's been a victim of the, the, the constant changing at the back as well. Mm. You know, that last season, playing behind a very settled back four for most of the season... He won the Golden Glove with the most um, with the most clean sheets in the Premier League. He shared that with with Petr Cech. So I think people have forgotten that very quickly. But I think what's happened is that he's been absolutely stupid uh, by doing what he did uh, in the dressing room. He's been punished for it, and now he's in a position where David Ospina uh, has played so well that he should keep his place in the side. And and Chesney, I don't think he was particularly at fault for either of the goals against Brighton, but didn't do anything to suggest that he should come straight back into the team. Mm. So I, I don't know what the situation is long-term, but in the very short term, he's paying the price for being stupid. And whether that books him up and makes him work harder and be more professional, we'll we'll have to wait and see. I hope that's exactly what it does, because I think he's a very good goalkeeper. I think he's a, a really good player with lots of potential. And it's about time he started realizing that potential. Mm. Um, but, it, you know, it might be a situation where Ospina plays so well that he, he doesn't get a chance in the team again um, for the rest of this season, apart from apart from in the cup. So, uh, you know, he, he's, he's, we talked about consequences earlier, actions and consequences. I don't think it was the biggest crime in the world, but he's put himself in the position where he's on the bench. So now it's up to him to fight his way back into the team. So we'll, we'll wait and see what he's made of. Yeah. So, James, we're going to have battles all over the field from left back, uh, arguably even right back, uh, well back, well back will come back in, 
at the striker, you know, everywhere over the pitch, which are the battles you're looking forward to watching most over the next few weeks, months? Mm, interesting question. Um, I think the, I think the Giroud and Welbeck, um, the competition for that place in particular is, is one that throws up a lot of debate amongst the Arsenal fans. Welbeck brings what, what a lot of people like about him, something, and, and certainly something that I like about him is he's a very diverse player in that he's, he's, he's got that speed. He's very quick on the counter, but he's also, um, he's a very physical player. He's able to bring others into the game. He's, he's got, he, he's, he's got a bit of everything, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't quite do the, the things that Giroud do as, as, as well as, as well as Oli. Um, so again, I, I wonder if, if that's a dynamic that, uh, Wenger introduces during different types of games, maybe, maybe in the more physical encounters, you might actually see, see Welbeck played out wide with maybe Alexis as well. And, and then Giroud up top, as we've seen in a few games. Um, and, you know, to that point is that we also have not only, you know, direct competition, say, between like an Alex and a, and a Theo, but also you've got a few players that can play in various different positions that have that ability to interchange. You have an Alexis who can play on the left, on the right, up front to a certain degree, especially when we were playing that four four two formation. Danny, who's got the ability to play out, out wide as well. Um, Santi can he, he can he can play in the attacking role. You'd, you'd some would say that he could play that kind of the, the Ramsey role a little a little deeper alongside the defensive midfield with maybe one of Urzil or Rosicki ahead, um, especially perhaps against weaker opposition. Um, it's uh, the you know I, I I don't really remember an Arsenal squad for quite some time that's had this level of competition, um, and it's what's remarkable is again aside from maybe Mature. Um, Flamini is there's very very few players that when you look at that squad you th- you think oh, you know mm. <laughs> when, when are we able to get rid of him when you look towards sort of the Nicholas Bentners of the past the Javinios the so-called Deadwood uh, the Park the Park Juyungs of this world um, and we seem to we seem to have very few of those and you know under the radar the kind of players that we've been bringing in consistently now for the last few years because even before Urza we brought in Olivier and and Santi Cazorla, and they've been players that are, are of Arsenal quality, and it's just taken that little bit of time to really start um, formulating um, a squad that has this level of strength, mm-hmm. which is, you know, uh, as, as I've already mentioned, is um, exciting to see. But also, you hear it a lot from Arsene, and I'm sure it's something that, you know, a lot of managers will tend to testify about their squad, but he you really do get the sense that this is a squad that has a very sort of strong bond. They, they seem to get on extremely well as a team. I think you look towards the types of players that are in very heavy competition now. Look at maybe a Theo and, and an Alex. They seem, to be, they seem to be both you know people that have their heads screwed on properly. They seem to be pretty intelligent people. I think they're, they're players that understand kind of the necessity of competition. You have an Oxlade-Chamberlain who I certainly don't think feels that he he has the right to be in that starting eleven. He's still a very young player. He's played a, a remarkable amount of games, really, for a player of his age. And you know, in, in a team of of Arsenal's stature, for example, I, I he's not a player that you know that's going to be happy to sit on the bench. But I think he's he's a player that's respectful of the fact that there will be certain games where Theo will start ahead of him, or or the formation might change slightly where to fit in an Özil, et cetera, et cetera. But he'll still get plenty of game time. I mean, we've <laughs> we talk so much about the problems of 
being you know the scarcities of the amount of injuries we we encounter and you know too often the the team has been picked for itself uh, you know the team has picked itself through the lack of options that we've had but now there's there's plenty of variety to be had there's plenty of diversity in this side um and especially given this the somewhat um low number of injury, injuries relative to what we're we're used to it's we, we see we appear to be in a, in a strong position and a, i i genuinely think that for the most part we've got a group of players that are the willing willing to accept that and um and and, and use it sort of in a in a, in a positive way and yeah. hopefully that will create some further momentum for both individual performances and and performances as a team yeah i must say uh Andrew, I cheer up every time I see Bellerin at right back at the moment. I always think this is going to be fun. Um, <laughs> and the other battle, uh, you know, go back a few, maybe two months, and I was super excited about Welbeck joining us. And I, I still think he can do great things with us. But I'd consigned Giroud to uh, a really good second option, the the B option. But mm. this this Olivier 2.0, uh, I'm really liking the look of what he's doing, how he's playing. The, those are kind of a couple of interesting spots on the, the park for me. What, what are the battles you like or what are the areas of, of the, the field you're looking forward to watching? Yeah, I think the right-back one is interesting because Bellerin has came into the side, I think his first start was against Dortmund and that was really thrown in at the deep end and and nobody particularly covered themselves in glory that night and he didn't have a great game but what's been really interesting is how quickly mm. he's developed and progressed and looks more confident and assured in the team i think chambers had a a very good start to the season and people were impressed by him and and are right to be impressed by him but you know again he he was a 19 year old coming into the side with very little experience as well and perhaps has been overplayed a bit. And, and the injury to Debussy has opened the door for both of those players. I think if Debussy had been fit, he would have played most of the season. So that's it. It's interesting. We talk about timing and, and opportunities presenting themselves to players and can they take those chances. And and Bellerin looks like he's going to be one of those. Uh, yeah, I agree with you about, about Giroud as well. I think the arrival of Welbeck has... I won't say it's refocused him, you know, but I think it's it's made it clear to him that, you know, here's a guy who's going to play in the same position as you, probably, and he's younger and he's faster and he might be, you know, a bit, a bit stronger. And uh, But one of the things that was interesting, people criticize Yuru for, for not scoring against the big teams. That was the big criticism that he was a guy who would get you goals against all the teams uh, outside the the top four. You know, he, once you went into that top four, he was always going to be found wanting. And what's he done this season? He scored against Man City, scored against Liverpool, he scored against Everton, he scored against Manchester United. I know it was a bit too little too late in, the, in that particular game, but he's he's improved in an area where people were very critical of him. And that's very interesting to me. And I think that's down to um, perhaps him being more focused, more settled. You know, he's he's uh, well and truly established at the club now. Uh, he's at an age where he should be playing his best football and he should be improving and, and scoring more goals. So, you know, all those factors combined make it make it very interesting. And as long as those guys stay healthy and they can keep firing off each other, then I think it's a good situation for us to be in. Great. Well, listen, guys, let's, let's wrap this up on a positive note. Um, I've really enjoyed our, our chat this evening. Big thanks to Andrew for joining us. 
and uh, my pleasure contribu- contributing uh, greatly across the spectrum of ways a man of your uh, connections can contribute. <laughs> well, so, thanks for having me. Thanks for that, Andrew. And James, thank you for your able assistance to polish off my rough edges and fill in the gaps today. And uh, uh, we'll we'll be back together next week on our podcast. Uh, I'm not sure if Elliot will be rejoining us at this stage, but hope you're having fun on vacation there, Elliot. And that's it for this week. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks.